Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. One of the themes that uh, emerges through these scriptures as I was praying with this over this past week, one of the things that you see in all of these readings that we have today is this theme of turning away, turning towards, this theme of conversion of mind, conversion of heart, this theme of change. These people say one thing and then they change, they're moving in a different direction. That's a theme that we see kind of throughout these readings. And I was reminded of uh, my philosophy classes back at Bormio Seminary, Dr. Chad Anglin, who's an amazing, amazing philosopher, a great scholar, and he's a huge, um, I don't know, expert in the work, work of St. Augustine. And so I got to learn St. Augustine really deeply through him. And one of the things that St. Augustine talks about, one of the phrases that he uses extensively throughout his writings is these two phrases in Latin, aversio adeo aversion of God, turning away from God, and conversio ad deum, turning towards God, a conversion towards God. You see that interplay of aversio and conversio throughout St. Augustine's writings. And I mean, in many ways, our entire spiritual life as disciples, as Christians, is caught up in that dialectic of, of turning away and turning towards, turning away and turning back towards. I was thinking about that recently with... Um, I don't know, I'm just so privileged as your priest to, to hear your confessions every Saturday. And uh, there's just been some unbelievably beautiful encounters of mercy in the, in the confessional. You know, one of the things that, that the seminary doesn't prepare you for as a priest is what I call splashback grace. Right? So like you always think, okay, I'm going to be the conduit of grace for someone, God willing. But you never expect how being in that place, there's all these things that come just splashing back on you. Like, this is just so amazing. There's been a lot of splashback grace recently of, of seeing people coming to that sacrament truly turning away from their sinfulness and seeking to turn their hearts back to the Father. In the, word, the word reconciliation itself, the etymology is so beautiful. Reconcilia literally means to, be, to turn back eyelash to eyelash. To be reconciled to the Father is to be eyelash to eyelash with the Father, to be that close. I've just experienced in my own, in my own heart, my own life, and the lives of other people that I've walked with, you know, especially in the sacrament, that you see people, you see how it's possible for people to, individuals to experience conversion, for individuals to experience a change of heart and a change of mind, to move from one direction to another direction. And I guess the question is, Okay, but what about like on a bigger scale? What about like cultures or civilizations or whole peoples? Like, can you see change there or is it just intractable or is it just, it's just reducible to the individual? If you've been coming to daily mass in the last few weeks, one of the things you've heard me pray for in the petitions, I add, I've been adding this petition in the, in the daily mass, praying for the defeat of the proposed constitutional amendment and that the culture of life would triumph over the culture of death. I've been adding that as a petition as we move closer and closer to the November 7th election. Look, and it's like even as I pray it, you know, at daily mass, it's hard not to feel cynical about it. It's hard not to have like a skeptical heart about it. It's hard not to feel like, like is, any, is anything 
going to make a difference? Like, is there actually going to be any change? Or are we just going to keep, like, flying down this luge, slippery slope into total chaos? Because there's some days it feels that way. It's hard to not feel cynical and despairing when you consider the, the, the scale and size of this monster that is the culture of death, when you consider how the momentum of the culture, the, 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 the vast, far-reaching tentacles and influence of the culture and what they're trying to do. I mean, just consider, for example, how, I mean, it was only just a few years ago in our own cultural, political conversation that the, that the conversation, the language about abortion was language about safe, legal, and rare. Right, that was the language. And now we, we have shout your abortion. Now we have billboards displaying, you know, shout your abortion, the goodness of abortion, the, the, the moral goodness of this reality. Wait, we were at one point debating the morality and the potential medical necessity of this, but now we have a culture that sees it as, as an absolute fundamental right. We have a culture that sees it as not, not only as a right, but a good, a good like, we have a culture now that within the culture, you've got, I mean, the church, in certain states, the, the Church of Satan has filed lawsuits against certain states because of their abortion bans, because they say, quote, it violates our freedom of religious expression. Like, think about what that means. Think about what that means. The proposed amendment that's coming on the November 7th ballot for our proposed constitutional amendment, the so-called right for reproductive freedom with protections for health and safety, it, it goes so far beyond Roe versus Wade. It goes so far beyond Roe that it will legalize, it will, it will enshrine in law the permission for late-term third-trimester abortions, right? That, you're, that a woman's due date is November 15th, and she can decide on November 14th. She can decide on November 15th. Because of my mental health, because of the, this, the thought of carrying another pregnancy, caring for another child, it's too burdensome. It's, it's not good for me. She can pay an abortionist to take the life of her daughter, to take the life of her son in her womb. This is what's going to be enshrined in law. It goes, it goes so far beyond this. Like if we were to stop this proposed abortion amendment on November 7th, it's not as though abortion suddenly becomes outlawed completely in the state of Ohio there will still be legal abortions. What we're trying to stop is this insane third trimester stuff. The proposed amendment, because it uses the language, you've heard me say this before, because it uses the language, very tricky legalese, it uses the language of individual rather than adult. What that means then is that any individual of any age, adult or minor, can obtain these procedures without the parental consent or involvement. And like the evil that this ushers in, like the psychological, spiritual damage that this wreaks in people's hearts and lives, it's just unimaginable. Like, I don't know if a culture can withstand this when vast numbers of its people are submitting themselves to this kind of soul-devastating kind of thing. Like, or think about this, how, I mean, consider how in our own culture, back in 2007, there was one one pediatric gender clinic in the United States. According to a recent report from Reuters, there's now over a hundred, and they're ever growing and expanding. Like, there is, undoubtedly, there is an epidemic of what psychologists 
counselors, psychotherapists are calling rapid onset gender dysphoria. Like there's this social media driven social contagion that's happening. It's especially prevalent among teenage girls. There's a great book by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage. If you want more on this, just read that book. It's, it's horrifying. In addition to that, in addition to this social contagion, there are individuals. There are, there are individuals with nefarious, and let's just call it for what it is, predatory motives who are behind this legislation, who want to push this forward because they want to normalize these kinds of conversations about these kinds of topics between adults and children. They want to break down barriers. They want to normalize this sort of thing. They want to remove parental involvement. And it just, it just beggars belief that they're trying to normalize and mainstream this kind of stuff for our children. Like this, this proposed amendment, as you've heard me say, it's trying to ensure that even minors without parental consent can have access to what's been called gender-affirming care, right? Puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, reassignment surgeries, mutilating surgeries, these sorts of things. Like, it is just, it's monstrously evil for a culture to gaslight and indoctrinate its children into thinking that it's possible to be born in the wrong body. It prevents children from being able to, like, reality check, to be in touch with reality if they cannot even trust the reality of their own physiology. Like, you just, you don't treat a psychological issue such as gender identity, an identity issue. You don't treat an identity issue by surgically modifying the body. Like, you don't help someone with anorexia by agreeing with her that, no, she's overweight. That's not love. That's not good care. So, look, I, I don't mean to be, like, I don't mean to be heaping on the bad news for us this morning, especially, you know, 10.30, we don't even have donut Sunday this morning. Like, I don't mean to be just throwing us under this wet blanket here to just to, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you feel what I feel on daily mass when I'm praying that petition, Lord, that the culture of life would triumph over the culture of death for us to feel and see like we are up against so much right now. And like, and it's fair to ask, one might ask, is there really honestly any hope? Is there any hope, any reasonable hope that there'll be any change that that this culture that's hell-bent on destroying itself, this culture can change its mind. That, As we heard in that first reading, that the wicked may abandon their evil, turn away from their evil. Is there hope for that? I'm here to tell you, yes. Because it's happened before. It's happened before. I want to take you back to the 16th century to Mesoamerica, the Aztec Empire, which was a culture that was not totally unlike our own. They were a culture of extreme, extreme graphic sexual abuses of the human person, extreme. It was a culture of extreme, like the foundation was a culture of death. It was a, the foundation was ritual human sacrifice. Hundreds of hundreds upon thousands of human hearts were cut out of the beating chests of people and offered to placate the gods. They were, by all accounts, a culture of death, a culture of extreme sexual perversion, pornographic perversion, both that idolized and hated the human body. And then all of a sudden, within the short span of a few years, it all just stopped, like completely stopped. 
Because beginning on December 9th, 1531, Mary began to appear to this young man, this recent convert named Juan Diego, on a hill called Tepeyac. And she was informing him, she informed him that she was the mother of the Most High God. And she came bearing this message. She came with this image, an image that literally converted a whole civilization. Like, there's some, there's some historians who look at the conversion of the Aztecs, and they simply dismiss it as, you know, another example of Spanish imperialism, cultural colonialism, of them stamping out this beautiful native Aztec culture. Um, no, lies. Lies from the pit of hell. It was Our Lady, it was Mary, Our Lady Guadalupe, who crushed the head of the serpent in Mexico to deliver a message to their culture, a message of life about how you build a civilization of life, this message about a culture of life, a message about mercy and reconciliation and peace, all of it flowing from her son who, as we heard Paul say, her son who, though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, coming in human likeness, taking the form of a slave, suffering death, even death on a cross, that the message that she was delivering is that you build a civilization, the culture of life is not by offering blood to the gods, but by realizing that the God who created everything came and offered his blood for us. That he came and offered himself as a way out of the scapegoating violence, as a way out of the insanity. He said, I'm not asking you for blood. I am giving you my blood. And it converted millions, 3,000 a day, if you do the math, 3,000 a day, every day for a decade. A mini Pentecost, a Pentecost every day for a decade. Millions converted. Look, the point is it's happened before. It has happened before. I often think, because of the books I read as a boy, because of the books I read, the movies I watched, the stories I was obsessed with, I often think in the lens of these great epic battles, these epic dramas, and... I mean, if you know my heart at all, you know that Lord of the Rings is like the lens for how I see. Like, Mordor is a real thing, right? The Ring of Power is a real thing. These things are real. They're more real than anything else in many ways. And I was, again, I was praying through this, and I was thinking about our moment, and I was brought to that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring when the Fellowship is making its way through the mines of Moria. And in the dark, they begin hearing grumbling deep, like thunder in the cave walls behind them, this deep, guttural sound. And they ask Gandalf, the wizard, their guide who's with them, they ask him, what is that? And he says to them, it's a Balrog, a demon of the ancient world. And then he adds this to them. He says, this foe is beyond any of you. Like, this, this is where we're at, this moment right now. This foe, this culture of death that is breathing down our neck, this Balrog that is hunting humanity, it is beyond any of us. This foe is beyond any of us. But not our God and not our Lady. Like, the point is hearts and minds can change. Hearts and minds can change. Like those who have said no to the Father in disobedience and choosing sin and choosing this way of death, they can turn and they can say, yes, they can be reconciled to the living God face to face, eyelash to eyelash. Like the advocates of these positions, the most pro-abortion advocate, 
the most pro-LGBTQ advocate, the most pro-trans advocate, these people who are good, these people who are not our enemy, these people who are loved by God, beloved by us, brothers and sisters, these people who we love and whose minds are tremendously confused and bought into lies, these people, their hearts and minds can change. There can be conversion. There's nobody who's beyond mercy. There's nobody who's beyond conversion. There's nobody who's beyond hope. So friends, as we enter into this month of October, right, beginning at Therese of Lisieux's feast day today, my patron, Therese's feast day in the month of October, which is both dedicated to the rosary and the month that is pro-life month, respect life month. And is not every other month pro-life month? Am I just saying, right? Anyway, nobody asked me about it. But as we head into this month, I want to encourage us again to be even more committed to the prayer and fasting and to engage in conversation with people. Hard conversations are in our future. We have to practice courage. We have to practice courage. We have to engage hard conversations. Like there are people you know who are on the fence about this. And I'm not asking you to shame, condemn, belittle, or say anything cruel. I'm just asking you to speak the truth. If we are not practicing courage, when we really need the courage, we won't have it. Because we got scared every time that there was just a, oh, maybe I don't want to upset somebody moment. We have to practice martyrdom now. Because when the time comes and we actually need it, God forbid we just fold our cards. What I'm asking you to do is I want to issue to us what I'm calling a memorare challenge. In terms of praying and fasting, I want us to, between now and the November 7th election, every single day, I want to offer a novena of memorares, nine memorares every single day. It's one of the most powerful prayers we all probably learned at the beginning of our Christian life. Or we are turning to Our Lady, like the Queen of the Heavenly Armies, asking her to fight this foe on our behalf, to fight and convert hearts and minds. That again, that, that the, the November ballot, the constitutional amendment would be defeated and that the culture of life would triumph over the culture of death. So for that petition, beginning today, let us pray. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection implored thy help, or sought thine intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Our Lady of Guadalupe, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit,